due to the complexity of the human social world, which is what actually gives us our greatest survival advantage, the fact that we connect so well with each other, that we're pack animals. It's also the reason why we have um, such uh, complex and large brains. The frontal lobes of human beings are very complex because it takes um, so much processing to allow us to successfully navigate through the world of other people. Um, we send so many complex messages to each other, and it's so hard to figure out what is the, you know, just immediately to do things that we do effortlessly, like figure out somebody's being honest or not being honest, when somebody's trustworthy or not trustworthy, when someone is emotionally available or whether they're not emotionally available, takes a lot of processing. So the human brain does this really well because it actually has two different uh, groups of processors, one of which happens largely consciously and the other of which happens largely unconsciously. Uh, you're familiar with it because by now, as you're all adults, you have heard that we have twin hemispheres, left and right. Uh, you will have heard that, in other words, the brain is bilateral and that um, if the both hemispheres uh, did the exact same thing. Uh, there would be no purpose for there being not only the bilateral structure, but also when we look at people with fMRI scans doing many tasks, the amount of processing do being done in one lobe or the other is significantly different. Now that's not to say that the twin hemispheres do things completely independently or that there's ever uh, activities that are entirely left hemispheric or entirely right hemispheric. In fact, we use both of them almost all the time, and yet they're so different in the way they view the world and the way they process the world that we couldn't be conscious of both of them. So one of our chief processors that process the world for us is virtually always shoved into the background of awareness. Um, sometimes we use it consciously, but very often we don't. So I'm going to talk about the differences, and then I'm going to talk about how the implications tonight on a very important set of tools in Buddha's practice. So the left hemisphere is what traditionally Buddhists who have known that we had two minds for a long time. That's why they used to refer to it as the little mind and the big mind. The left hemisphere in traditional Buddhist practice was the little mind in that it's the realm of what's called, in, by neuroscientists, the interpreter. It's the part of your brain that turns everything that happens in the world and everything we do into a narrative, a story, where we explain why we behaved the way we did, why we did the things we did, why people act the way they do, and we maintain our goals for the future, things we'd like to accomplish. So we turn our life into a story. And... Of course, this is very useful in many ways. We can effortlessly, in language, report uh, what's been occurring in our lives. And we can also keep track of goals by turning them into these little narratives, these inner biographies. The left hemisphere has a very, very focused, narrow spotlight of attention. If you're in a party, 
when you first take in all of the scene and you get the sort of gestalt of the party, that's your right hemisphere. The right hemisphere is aware of your connection to the world around you. Your right hemisphere is what appreciates your naturalness, your interconnection with others. The left hemisphere views you as completely separate and in competition with everyone else, and it looks for things in the world to acquire and accumulate to make your life safer. So if you were a chipmunk in a field looking for a nut, your left hemisphere would be focusing on the nut, but your right hemisphere would be looking for all the other chipmunks in your family of chipmunks. Um, <laughs> And it would be looking out for foxes or eagles or other predators that could do you harm. So the left hemisphere, focusing on the nut, would be largely conscious. The right hemisphere for the chipmunk, looking for threats, connections, uh, uh, people, other, other chipmunks, I should say, to support <laughs> us. Um, I have to get out of this analogy as soon as possible. Uh, is largely what's known as implicit, unconscious, being done in the background. Your left hemisphere keeps track of tasks, as we said, through language, but when we start to drift away from being connected enough with other people or we start moving into the realm of insecure uh, attachments in our life, we are signaled this by the right hemisphere through things called emotions. The right hemisphere rarely uses language to state or present its um, needs. It lets us know when we are balanced too much towards isolation, uh, aloneness, separation, by making negative emotions. And the right hemisphere rewards us for the times we connect with our friends and we share our emotions with a therapist or with a family member or with a, you know, someone we're in a relationship with. When we promote intimacy, the right hemisphere creates positive emotions. And that's basically all your emotions do for you. They, one, let you and other people know how tribally and interpersonally bonded you are. It's going on, all of its processes are largely happening behind the scenes. And that's why in our Western culture, we tend to over-prioritize accumulation, spending, buying, purchasing, amassing, why we tend to promote um, the uh, careerist, materialist pursuits, because that makes sense to all of our left hemispheres. The conscious part of the mind that says, oh, I don't feel very safe in the world. What should I do? I should get more money, get a better job, uh, purchase something, uh, treat myself to something. So, in essence, this is also known as the dopamine treadmill, because if we try to solve a lot of our emotional problems, feelings of insecurity, loneliness, through consuming Netflix, posting, uh, texting, doing things that are essentially isolating and don't promote connection, then all we do is we give ourselves short-term boosts of dopamine, which lasts for a very short period of time, and for a little while we feel that our lives are solved, and then once again we're back 25 minutes later in the feelings of loneliness, isolation, sadness, which are the right hemisphere saying, nice try, but that pair of shoes we bought, or that hoodie, or that... Uh, 
cookie or whatever it is we accumulated didn't do the trick. So most useful human endeavors integrate left and right hemispheres together. When you draw a picture you, where you express your emotions, where you sing a song, when you play the guitar or the piano, when you disclose your emotions to anyone else, you're using your left and your right hemisphere. Your left hemisphere is putting your feelings into words. Your right hemisphere is expressing your feelings through non-verbal gestures, tone of voice, facial expressions, body language, and so forth. To the, it's the hemispheres are dissimilar to the extent that while right now you are looking at me, your left hemisphere is actually watching my lips move because it helps your left hemisphere figure out all the neurotic spillage of words <coughs> that come out of my mouth. It helps you actually hear the content. But your right hemisphere is actually looking sadly, at my gestures and my facial expressions and all the things to see, you know, how present do I look to you, how authentic, how relaxed or whatever. So you're constantly going back and forth. When we feel uncomfortable around people, very often it's because what they're saying to us and what we're trying to understand with our left hemisphere doesn't sync up with the emotions that they're signaling. So somebody at work might say, I'm fine, I had a great weekend, and you can read on their face that they are anything but fine, and it creates a feeling of disquiet or awkwardness because you know that they're not being authentic. Now, all of the major solutions we do in life very often reintegrate right and left hemisphere. Let's look at a very obvious example um, Suppose you're a drug addict or alcoholic, welcome to the club, I'd say. Um, what would happen is if you reached a bottom, uh, the reason you would be drinking or using drugs is because at one point in your life you became frightened of some of your emotions and decided it was better to take drugs or alcohol when you felt those emotions rather than to express them to other human beings because you've grown to distrust other human beings. So you consume alcohol every time you feel uh, self-conscious or you consume heroin every time you feel angry. And then one day you have a bottom and you go into a 12-step fellowship. And what does that do? It actually reintegrates right hemispheric needs, connecting with other people, disclosing your emotions. And that ends the craving for the narcotic or the alcohol. But then what happens? After you get about five or six years of sobriety, your life looks pretty good and you decide, well, it's about time for me to stop going to these meetings and start prioritizing making money and having a career. And then what happens is you replace drugs with careerism as a way to get rid of your emotions and not rely on other people. So the goal of all human beings is to promote if we want to be happy and fulfilled, is to promote bilateral integration in our lives. Have connections that are robust with other human beings that are meaningful, where we disclose our emotions, where we feel safe to express the entire palette of the human emotional set, and yet at the same time also accomplish certain things. And to the degree that at times in our life we start to have spikes of addiction or we start to have 
ex negative emotions or we start to experience panic attacks is because we've failed to integrate those very discernibly different human needs. Okay? That's a lot of shit I just poured out on you. <laughs> so, one of the uh, core teachings of the Buddha was called the Brahma Viharas, which are the ways that we integrate with other human beings. And there are four of them. The Buddha basically, to summarize them, said that we should interact with other human beings if, wherever possible from goodwill, compassion, appreciation, and equanimity. Those are the four Brahma Viharas. The Brahma Viharas are, like most Buddhist tools, emotional, right hemispheric, connecting pro-tribal attempts to, uh, to encourage us to reconnect with other people in an authentic, honest, caring way. The first three, goodwill, which is essentially wanting other people to be happy, not despite their actions, but wanting them to know the sources of happiness, which are essentially, as we've said, to integrate our altruistic, pro-tribal, pro-social needs to connect with each other authentically, openly. We want other people to be happy. When other beings are suffering, we want their suffering to end. We don't just wish this willy-nilly. We actually, if we are kind, we will do things that will help actually end their suffering. We'll give them the attention that they're lacking in their life. We'll give them, uh, we'll share our own experience that will help them discern how we too have suffered so they won't feel so alone. And if they ask, we might even inform them how we think maybe they're causing suffering in their own life. Or perhaps we'll show them, give them resources for help. So it's not just uh, wishing people would be happy. It's actually compassionate action. That's very much at the core of maintaining uh, some semblance of pro-tribal feelings in us. And I should note that there's these, this understanding of the importance of maintaining Interpersonal disclosure has been ratified by so much clinical studies. In the 1980s, Martin Seligman, the positive psychologist, did a series of studies that then blossomed into the World Happiness Report. And what they found in these reports when they did the meta-analysis of hundreds of thousands of people that were surveyed, People are happiest not when they make a lot of money, not when they accumulate a lot of power, not even necessarily when they have children or when they accomplish great things. People generally feel happiest in life under two, when they have two criteria that they meet. One, when they uh, feel deeply connected with friends. They have a wide group of friends that they disclose their emotions to. And two, when they feel that their work is of benefit to other people. So we see right there again and again and again that if we want to be happy, it's not a mystery happiness. It's a matter of feeling that our lives are connected and of benefit to others. So, we have so far, we've talked about the Brahma Viharas in terms of goodwill, wanting other beings to be happy and wanting them to be happy based on the skillfulness of their actions. 
And we want them to, we want compassion, which means we want their suffering to end. The third Brahma Vihara is appreciation. When we see other people that are doing well, we don't feel threatened by their happiness or the fact that they are, you know, in a good job when we're unemployed or they're in a relationship when we're alone, or they are popular when we don't feel popular, or when they are successful in their stand-up careers and we don't have a stand-up career. <laughs> I was just talking to somebody who's jealous of that. <laughs> so uh, that would be the worst thing career to have. Go up in front of an open mic and try to make people laugh. That would be horrible. Anyway... Uh, so, I don't know where that came from. I just felt sad for them when they were talking about that. <laughs> so anyway, the Buddha was very clear that when we wish, and also with appreciation, we really want their happiness to continue, and we realize that happiness is not a zero-sum game, which means there are not limited supplies of happiness. When we're materialists, we feel threatened by other people's happiness because there's only so much goods to go around. But when we are, have some spiritual or psychological <coughs> insights, we know that someone else's happiness does not come at our expense because happiness has nothing to do with acquiring, achieving, accumulating, amassing. It only has to do with feeling connected and of value to other human beings. So we never, if we have any spiritual insight, we never feel any form of envy for what other people have because we know that the true form of happiness is available to us. Now, um, to stop for a moment and just talk about the, the first three Brahma Viharas, in the West, we are so awkward with turning emotions into language that we have these things, and we're so bad at it, we have these things called Hallmark cards, which turn every legitimate human emotion, like wanting to express gratitude for someone in our family or someone we love, turn it into schmaltzy, <laughs> sentimental, embarrassing cliches. Such as, you're the best mommy ever. You're the best. Nobody could have a better daddy, better mommy. <laughs> <laughs> because we can't do it. We don't know. We don't feel comfortable with our emotions. And when we, when we try to express our emotions, we get tongue-tied, uh, terrified. And so we tend to rely upon these sort of cliches to express it. And likewise, in the Buddhist world, is not immune from this. The Buddhist world in the West turned the Buddha's Brahma-viharas into these really schmaltzy, May all beings everywhere be happy. <laughs> Which is not exactly what the Buddha said. He actually, in the Metta Sutta, he actually says, Sabe Sata Bhavantu Sukitata, which means may all beings be inclined towards happiness, which is a short way of saying may all beings act skillfully so that they will be happy. It's not a just wishing Dick Cheney would be happy so that he'll end being 
unkind. It's wishing that he would stop being selfish and harmful to other beings so that he will experience happiness. I don't wish Steve Bannon happiness. I wish that he would understand how much suffering he's causing other beings and himself so that he too wouldn't turn into the, pr the prince of darkness and death, but in fact be someone who actually had some peace. It's not a, it's not this just wish that other people magically feel happiness despite how unskillful they're acting. It's actually wishing that people who are causing harm, who are acting selfishly, who are not reaching out for help when they need it, would actually take the actions so that they could experience positive emotions. So it's deeply embedded in the wisdom of karma. Right? It's not about just rewarding people for acting selfishly. It's about wishing other beings would know the sources of true peace and contentment, which is connecting harmlessly, altruistically, pro-socially with other beings, rather than constantly being in competition, which is left hemispheric. The fourth Brahma Vihara is the is equanimity, upekka. Um, equanimity is the the place where the the head, rather the left hemisphere, plays the greatest role in the Brahma Viharas. It plays a role in all of them, as do the heart emotional practices. But sometimes in our lives, we get so involved with other people, so involved with another being suffering, so involved with uh, someone who's, um, or so envious of somebody who's doing well, so over caught up in somebody else's life that we're no longer uh, benefiting from spiritual connection. The compassion we're expressing, the goodwill, the appreciation, the relationship isn't working. It happens. There's a program called Al-Anon. You might have heard of it. It's for people who need to learn how to detach with love from relationships that have become toxic. It's very easy to develop equanimity, which means the ability to, with kindness, disconnect from someone who we cannot have in our life for whatever reasons, perhaps our past, perhaps in some way we trigger each other. I remind <coughs> you of your dad, you remind me of my mom, I don't know what, but for some reason, we are not meant to be. It happens. We're adults. We can live with it. We can, we can deal with it. So the Brahma Viharas, the fourth one, equanimity, is about knowing when to let go. How do we know it's time to let go? Well, one, even though we've tried to be kind, we've tried to be compassionate, we've tried to appreciate the positives of another human being, we still are not seeing any change in the relationship. There's still constant conflict, drama, disappointment, miscommunication. The relationship is, uh, not, go there's, is not in any way benefiting from our best spiritual engagement. The second is called preoccupation. Preoccupation is the psychological insight that if we are 
carrying around the story or the concern about someone else in different areas of our lives where we've become so attached to a result that we're now thinking about that person not just when we're with them but when we're with someone else that we should be paying attention to or when we're uh, engaged in a creative or a work project where suddenly we no longer can pay attention. Preoccupation is a sure sign that we're overbalanced, that we need to be able to detach. There's also the physiological right hemispheric um, tension that we carry around afterwards. If after we engage with someone, we are still physically tense, our shoulders are tight, our, our belly is tight, we feel somewhat strangulated hours after, it means the emotional mind is saying that we are not comfortable with that relationship. That's how the right hemisphere speaks to us. Now, when I talk about detachment or letting go, it, very often we don't have to completely disconnect. In fact, Psychologically, cutting someone off is rarely the best solution unless there is real forms of violence, aggression, or real, real kinds of, uh, uns where one person in the relationship is unsafe. Most of the time, what we want to do is be able to establish boundaries, which means have guidelines that are meaningful as to how often we connect, under what circumstances, what topics we'll talk about. But to be able to do that, we have to have certain tools at our disposal. It's very difficult. It's easy to disconnect from someone you don't give a shit about. It's not so easy to disconnect with some, from someone you love or you've been in a relationship with or you spent a significant portion of your life. You'll still want to track them on Facebook. You'll still want to uh, ask friends about what's going on in their, in their life. You'll still want to be involved somehow. It's not easy. Part of what makes it so difficult is we have these things called superegos, which are interjections of our parents' voice that don't allow us to disconnect from attachment figures, even when there's a lot of toxicity going on in those relationships. The only way that we can skillfully really move on or let go is if we redirect the attachment energy, and all human beings have attachment desires, which are driven by right, the right hemisphere, towards other people where we can connect, where we can disclose our emotions, where it's safe. If you simply try to disconnect from someone without replacing that attachment figure, you will find that the surplus energy will come back to you in the form of either grief or anger. There's no way to simply disconnect from an important attachment figure without reconnecting that need for human bonding in a different direction. Now, that doesn't mean if you've been in a long-term relationship, you've broken up, you should immediately screw the first person you see that looks attractive and try to get into a meaningful, emotionally disclosing relationship with them. It means simply to connect deeply, authentically with other people. Disclose your emotions. Equanimity doesn't... Uh, it's not indifference. It's not cold. It's Most people never get to the point where they need to let go when they've so gone so far over any degree of being helpful or benefiting from the relationship by the time they even 
think about letting go, generally that ship passed a long time, you know, sailed a long time ago. I rarely <coughs> meet people who start thinking about letting go um, uh, <coughs> way too early. I mean, sure, if you're an avoidant male, you might do that, but most people don't. Um, so, uh, when it comes time, it's very important to understand that it's not just disconnecting and it's not doing harm to them. If you're in a relationship <coughs> that's toxic to, or that's uh, dysfunctional to the extent that you're seriously mulling how can you detach, then probably by that point it's not just to your benefit, but it's to their benefit as well. Now, that doesn't mean that your superego will let you do that. You all, every human being has a little voice of, but I should, I shouldn't let go, I, you know, I should keep track of them, I should have them in my life, I shouldn't have done that. So there'll be a little character in there that won't want you to move on. It's a nagging right and left hemispheric character that will continually urge you to look at their Facebook page, to follow them on Instagram, to be involved. So we have to sometimes be very diligent in our uh, emotional practices, not just connecting and expressing how much emotional pain there is when it comes to detaching, but also once again and again and again reminding ourselves that we're not simply disconnecting, we're re-channeling the energy so that we can be of benefit and connection and connected with other people. So I'm going to use some phrases as we do the Brahma Vihara meditation that are not that common. Most of the time in Western Buddhists, they just use things like, may all beings be happy all the time. I'm going to use slightly different phrases, but I want you to consider using whatever phrases you think are resonant that capture the spirit. Again, the four Brahma Viharas are, may all beings know the sources of true happiness and may they act on them. May all beings that are suffering take the actions that will end their suffering. May all beings that are um, enjoying uh, success, happiness, connection in their life, may they continue to reap the benefits of their skillful actions. And may all of us know when it's time to disconnect. May all of us, um, one of the phrases that's used to capture equanimity is to remind ourselves that all beings are heir to their actions. I can't end your suffering. You can't end my suffering. There's no human being that I can lift out of the, uh, the turmoil uh, if they are continuing to cause suffering for themselves. So what will happen if I reach that far out of the boat to try to save someone is they'll pull me into the water before I'll pull them into the boat. So let's close our eyes. Let go of bearing in mind all the verbiage I've just pushed at you and just come to rest in this moment. And we'll start with some breaths together. So take a nice 
full in-breath through the nose and lift up your shoulders like you're trying to touch your ears, if you feel like it. You don't by any means have to. Just hold them up there. And then as you breathe out through the mouth, drop the shoulders like they each weigh a ton. And if it feels right for you, gently reposition the shoulders slightly back so you open up your chest. That generally also helps with one's posture, and it also makes it easier to breathe fully. Now, for the next practice breath, take a full inhalation and pull in the belly like you're trying to remove two inches from your waist. Hold it in really tight. And then breathe out through the mouth and soften the belly and have that really nice round Buddha belly. Nobody's looking. We all have our eyes closed. So just, <laughs> just allow your belly to be nice and released. If your parents ever told you to suck it in, now's the time to rebel. <laughs> And uh, so for the third in-breath, tighten the toes, the buttocks, the fists, the facial muscles, the jaw. Just tighten it all. Hold it tight and then relax all around the body. So take a quick survey of the body and see if there's anything that is needlessly clenched, maybe the palms could be more relaxed, maybe your clothes are tight and you could relax them, maybe your uh, legs are folded awkwardly. Try not to sit like a Buddha. We don't really know what he looked like when he sat and anyway, trying to be like someone else will never promote inner peace. Just try to be as comfortable as you can while not falling asleep. That's the real foundation. If at any point of the meditation you find your mind is really jumping about, then what you do is take very long <coughs> out-breaths that are long and smooth, and if at any point you find that you're falling asleep, with each inhalation, hold the inhalation for two or three beats longer than you normally would, and that actually slightly tends to wake us up, holding the breath.
you know, a good place to develop some settled, focused awareness is starting with the eyes. Just see if you can settle the eyes behind the eyelids. So imagine what it would be like if the eyes felt a little bit less twitchy. They began to float comfortably in the two pools, as we'll call it. <coughs> when the eyes settle behind the eyelids, it actually sends messages to parts of the midbrain that tell us there's nothing going on, and indeed, there really isn't anything going on right now. We're just sitting in a room. We're safe. So we don't need to keep track of anything external. We can relax all of the processes that generally keep track of the world around us. Relaxing the micro-muscles around the eyes, the forehead. Allowing the ambient sounds to be part of your awareness. In general, let anything that's actually occurring right in this moment be part of what keeps you present. The only thing we're right now not doing is not allowing the mind to jump into any thought and start to create a virtual reality that is completely different from the context we're inhabiting. So that tendency to daydream, to plan, to remember, to live in a little inner movie is all we're not doing. And when any thought or memory or fantasy or plan for the future comes up, just don't push it away, but don't climb into it. Just allow it to be there. 
So this moment, just allow the sensations of sound, body, breath, just allow them to be there in the background and in the foreground of your awareness, bring to mind someone that you know and like, care about, a friend or someone that you admire. Just hold an image, not a movie of them, just an image of them in your mind and May this person be inclined to happiness and peace. May they act skillfully and enjoy the benefits of their skillful actions that we know that they are capable of. May they feel connected and loved supported, knowing that all beings are the owners of their happiness, may this person continue to act skillfully so that they may enjoy all the unconditional peace and happiness that human beings can experience. Just allow their image to dissolve and bring to mind someone that we don't know. Just getting to know someone that we see every day could be a stranger or someone that we have only recently found in our lives. Just hold their image and just wish that this person will stay connected, balanced, altruistic, 
harmonious in their actions so that they will experience peace, joy, security, all the benefits of being bonded with others. So let go of their image and bring to mind the image of someone who may be suffering right now due to loss, due to unskillfulness, due to the vagaries of misfortune or the harmful acts of others, but just bring to mind someone who is suffering. I care about your suffering. May your suffering end and to any degree that your suffering is caused by unskillfulness, pushing others away, isolation, suspicion, doubt, may you see the true sources of happiness and may you act on them so that your suffering will end. Bringing to mind the image of someone who's been enjoying successes in life, whether reaping the rewards <coughs> of hard work, someone who's enjoying creative 
rewards or perhaps someone who's in a relationship or in some kind of interpersonal situation that we would like to be. <coughs> Reminding ourselves that their happiness doesn't come at our expense. May you continue to reap the benefits of skillful actions. May you continue to enjoy the happiness that you've worked towards with skillful, kind, diligent, engaged actions. May you continue to enjoy the benefits of your skillfulness. Letting go of that person, bringing to mind someone who we've tried to help or be connected with or have some form of relationship with and at this point it's not meant to be. The relationship, the interactions have been riddled with conflict or disappointment. May you connect with the people that you need to connect with for happiness and peace. And may I connect with those people that will help me achieve the same peace and happiness. May we both know the true sources of happiness and act upon them. May you find peace of mind skillfully, may I as well. And finally, letting go of their image and bringing to mind an image of yourself as you are right now in your life in whatever stages of stress and happiness, creativity, feelings of being blocked, may I know the true sources of peace of mind, 
May I find balance in my life. May I care about my suffering. May I know when to reach out and connect with others. May I enjoy the benefits of my skillful acts, the happiness produced when I feel proud of my actions. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes just looking at the ground in front of you and try to balance in sight the shapes, the colors, the light, but maintain awareness of your body, the feelings and emotions that are expressed through the body so that we have a balanced awareness. Don't just let sight pull you into the world around you and abandon all the rich inner messages that your right hemisphere are sending you all the time. <clears throat> 